Well, congregation, at this time, let me invite you now to turn in your copy of God's Word to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. We're going to be looking at verses 14 through 29 this morning. And uh, if you're following along in the Pew Bible, you'll find that passage on page 1,000. Page 1,000 in the Pew Bible. Last week, uh, in our study of the Gospel of Mark, we, we looked at a little bit of a transition now as Mark records. Uh, Jesus sending out the 12 apostles on an early mission uh, to go two by two unto the surrounding region in order to preach the gospel and to prepare the way uh, for his arrival as he's making his way now to the cross. And uh, we noted there that they preached, they were, had authority over demons, and they healed. And uh, we pick up the narrative in verse 14 where such a ripple has, uh, or such an effect has been made that uh, word has gotten out all the way to King Herod. And now Mark takes a little bit of an excursus or excursion, and we, we read a little bit about, the effect, uh, about what King Herod had done with John the Baptist. So that is the focus this morning. Uh, there's a number of different ways we could approach the text. I did have an outline where we dealt with the effects of the Word of God and how it affected the people around. But instead, I want to focus now on the, uh, the statement here of the conscience. Uh, you'll note here that what Mark really hones in on is the weighted conscience that King Herod had over the killing of John the Baptist, and that really kicks off the whole scene, and so that's going to be a little bit of what we're going to focus on this morning. Uh, but with that, I remind you, this is the very living Word of God, and so receive it as such, Mark 6, and we begin at verse 14. King Herod heard of it, that is the preaching of the twelve apostles on behalf of Jesus, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison. For the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man. And he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. When Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom." And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately and with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. 
And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. There ends the reading of God's holy word. And as always, I remind you, we are dependent on the Spirit to bless the preached word. Let's pray for his blessing now. Our great God and our Father, we have come here because your word is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. Father, we have come here this morning because it is here under uh, your preached word that we hear from you and are addressed by you. And so, Father, we pray, bless us now. Bless us specifically with the presence of your Spirit. Father, we pray that he would bless him who speaks now, that the words that would be spoken would not be his words, but, Father, your words. Father, your servant is very aware this morning that he has nothing that can transform hearts, but it is you and you alone who can work. And so, Father, do that now. Bless us through the hearing of your word that your servants, your children would be encouraged, that perhaps any here who do not know you savingly would be converted. But Father, together we pray, come very powerfully now through the preached word to lift us up, that our eyes would see Christ and him crucified above all things. And we ask this in Christ's name alone. Amen. Well, many years ago, when Mandy and I were first married, we bought a car that we found out later on had some sort of electrical issue. I have no idea to this day what was wrong, but uh, when we got it and started driving it, suddenly now a lot of warning lights on our dashboard uh, were starting to go off just seemingly randomly. And when it first happened, of course, we were worried. We thought something was drastically wrong, so we took it into the mechanic. I think the first time we took it in, he accidentally wiped the code, and so he couldn't do anything, and drove it around for a couple more days, the lights came back on, so we took it back in, and I think we went two, three, maybe even four times to the mechanic, and over and over he would say, I have no idea why these lights are on. It makes no sense, uh, keep taking it back in, eventually we'll figure it out. Uh, well, we got kind of tired of doing that, and so we finally said, well, let's just take a risk. Let's just ignore the lights for a time, and maybe, just maybe, the car will continue on, and that's exactly what happened. Over the coming months and over the coming years, lights would turn on and they would turn off and nothing happened to the car. Uh, I think we had one light that stayed on all the time. We had a couple lights that would turn on and off randomly. But overall, uh, we just grew accustomed to having a dashboard full of lights and just ignored it. And it got to a point where we just never even paid attention to it. In fact, one of Mandy's relatives visited us in South Carolina when we were down there. and He looked at us and said, why are you not doing anything about it? And I honestly said, I'd forgotten all about it. I had no, I just didn't even think about the lights that were on because we just grew so accustomed to them. Well, this morning, I would submit to you that that is a, an analogy for what can happen if you or I ignore the warning lights of our conscience in our life. The Bible teaches us that part of the image of God that's wrought in us, part of God's gift to us as his creatures is we have an innate sense of guilt when we do wrong. We call it our conscience. And our conscience warns us when we sin or we do something wrong. We, we feel that weight of guilt. We feel that flush of embarrassment and shame when we realize that what we had just done is something that was wrong. And our conscience is really prompting us to go in and do something about it. But if you do what I did so long ago and ignore the warning light of your conscience... There's a sense in which you will grow so accustomed to doing wrong 
so accustomed to suppressing your conscience that you can continue in a life of sin to a degree where you're not even bothered by your conscience anymore. You'll suppress it to a point where you are able to do sin and not even feel any weight of guilt about it. And in many ways, the Bible teaches us that from many angles, but our text this morning really shows us that on full display with one man, that's King Herod. The point of the text this morning, as Mark is recording these details, is to show us that King Herod felt the weight of guilt when he heard about Jesus' ministry because he knew he was a murderer. He knew what he had done was wrong. He knew what he had done was guilty. And therefore, when he heard about Jesus' ministry and how, in his mind, John the Baptist had come back from the dead, his conscience flared up and he realized, I have been caught, or he thought he had been caught. And so Mark records this in many ways to show us the weighted consciousness of, conscience of this man and how he suppressed it to his own detriment. The end result of King Herod's life, as I will note at the end of the sermon, is one of absolute destruction. He went his own way, and it led to his own demise. And so with that in mind, here's the theme that with God's help I hope to show you this morning. We learned that ignoring your guilt leads to misery and hardness of heart. Or maybe you can put it this way to be more consistent. Ignoring your conscience leads to misery and the hardness of your heart. I have three points or three headings to get at the text this morning. First of all, we want to note the confused conscience. The confused conscience of Herod. Secondly, the conflicted conscience. The conflicted conscience of this man where he kept him alive uh, for a time, and we need to know the reasons for that. And then finally, thirdly, the corrupted conscience. The corrupted conscience of Herod that led to the beheading of John the Baptist. So those three points, the confused conscience, the conflicted conscience, and then thirdly, the corrupted conscience of Herod. So now, first of all now, Note with me now the confused conscience. And we picked it up in verses 14 and 15. Uh, last week we left off with Jesus sending the 12 apostles out, teaching and preaching. And if you look at verse 14, it had created enough stir uh, that people were talking about it. Verse 14. We read that King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah, and others said, he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. We see here that the word has produced something. As these apostles went out two by two, city by city, people began talking more about the Jesus that they're preparing the way for. Families were sitting around the table. People were working together, and they would say, hey, did you see those two guys that came through? Oh, yeah, I saw them. Did you listen to them? Oh yeah, they talked all about this Jesus or this Messiah, and they did powerful miracles which proved something about his arrival. And they began to speculate, well, well, who is he? And you see your text, there were three views of the day. Supposedly some said, well, this is John the Baptist. Uh, some translations say that Herod alone believed this. Our translation renders it as a few people. It's very likely. Some people superstitiously may have thought, well, since miracles are being done, since the preaching is kind of the same, repent and believe, maybe God raised John the Baptist from the dead. Maybe he's back and, and he's going to be about preaching again. But you notice as well, a second theory was that it is Elijah. 
Now, that may sound odd to you and I, but it actually has grounding from the Old Testament, especially the book of Malachi. Malachi said before the Messiah will arrive, he will send Elijah to prepare the way. And so they begin to say, well, well, maybe this is Elijah come back from the dead. Maybe he's preparing the way. That, of course, ultimately was John the Baptist who fulfilled that. And the third theory is that he's just simply a prophet. Ah, this is nothing more than another prophet. God has been silent for a number of years, and maybe just another prophet's come up, and uh, that will be the end of it. Uh, But the point is, people are talking, rumors are going around about who Jesus is, and the word is producing an effect. And just as an aside, I would note that. Uh, The Old Testament tells us that God's word never returns to him void, and that's exactly what we see in the text. When these apostles went out and preached, it did not fall dead to the ground, but people began talking to such a degree that everyone was abuzz with whoever they were preparing the way for. But you notice, that's not the focus of the text. The focus of the text is on what one man thought. Look at verse 16. We read there, but when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I've beheaded, has been raised. Mark records the inner thoughts of Herod. When Herod heard the words, and maybe he heard the the one view of this, he says, it's got to be John the Baptist. It's got to be John the Baptist whom I killed, whom I beheaded. Now you ask the question, why in the world would Herod jump to such a conclusion as this? And this is what Mark is driving home. It is the weight of his conscience bearing on him that he has been found out. Surely he's come back from the dead. Surely he's been raised because I am guilty because I have beheaded him. Notice that about the text. Herod goes immediately to the theory that forever, for whatever reason, John has been raised from the dead, come back in order to minister again despite the fact that Herod is the one who killed him. Now, there was a lot of similarities, of course, between John and Jesus. The preaching was the same. The miracles, of course, of Jesus pointed to the powerful proclamation of John the Baptist. But ultimately, you notice verse 16 tells us that Herod was a man with a guilty conscience. Herod was a man who was jittery. Herod was a man who felt a ping in the back of his mind about what he had done, and he would push it away. Maybe he would wake up early in the morning, and he would stretch as he jumped out of bed, and the thought would come to his mind, murderer. You killed an innocent man. And he'd brush it away and say, no, no, I got to get about my work. I got to put this away. Maybe when he was by himself taking a walk and, and the thoughts would come over his mind and his mind would immediately rush, murderer, you're guilty. You've done this. You're a killer. Whatever the case may be, this is a man whose conscience was screaming at him, you are guilty. And you notice he's jittery. He's afraid of being found out. He's afraid that what he has done is going to come back and he's going to see the person who he killed face to face. What I put in my notes is that the description of him is that he's jittery with anxiety because of the weight of his conscience because of what he had done. Uh, Here's the point. Herod is a man who's guilty and he is feeling the weight of guilt and it is plaguing him. Now, just think for a moment about this. This is not something that Herod alone is familiar with, but I would submit to you it's something that both you and I experience in our own life. 
Uh, Think of your own life. Think of my own life this morning. Perhaps it's the same for you and me. When you and I commit sin and we think it's hidden from other people, isn't there a sense where we feel this? We do something and we think no one has found out. I alone know what I've done. I alone know what I've seen, sought, or or seen, thought, or done. And and no one else knows. It's, It's just really between me and God. And maybe you and I can suppress that for a time and think, well, it's hidden. No one will find me out. But then our conscience begins to push on us. What if someone finds out? What, what if someone somehow, some way, finds out what I've done, I will be exposed? Or maybe you, and maybe I have experienced this as well. We, we know we've got to cover this up. We haven't confessed it. We have not shared it with someone else. And so we put on a show, and we know that we're pretending, and so we get a little jumpy about it. What's going on? It is our conscience weighing on us because we fear being found out. We fear people knowing what we've done, and therefore we are jittery and we're filled with anxiety, wondering, will I be found out? You see, what is that? Well, that's nothing less than our conscience weighing on us about what we have done. And that is what Herod is experiencing. And in fact, that's what David talks about. If you read in Psalm 32, he hid him, held himself. He, he did not confess his sin before God. And how does he describe it? My bones were wasting away. I was at torment until I confessed my sin. And when I confessed my sin, the weight was lifted off me. I felt the release of knowing I was honest with God, and I shared what I had done, you see. See, David knew what it was to not confess sin. He know, we know that about him in Bathsheba, do we not? For at least nine months, David lived under the weight of unconfessed sin. He thought he got away with it. He was a murderer. He was an adulterer. Only a few people knew what he had done. And then came into his throne room one day Nathan. And Nathan said, you're the man. And David was found out. You see, that's why Psalm 51 is so beloved, isn't it? Because we can resonate with the the overwhelming relief of confessing sin. David says, I know my sin before you, God. And I have sinned before you and you alone. Forgive me. See, that is what happens when we transgress against the Holy God and do not confess it. The weight of our guilt plagues us, and that is where Herod is at in our text. He is a man under the weight of a guilty conscience. Now, secondly, though, secondly, the story goes on. Now we find out how John the Baptist died. And you know, secondly, we have a scene of a conflicted conscience with Herod. Note the reason for the arrest, verse 17. Said, for it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. We now get the background for why John has been arrested. We saw that in chapter 1, verse 14, that John was in prison. But now this morning, we find out the reason was because Herod was angry with him. Uh, by the way, this Herod is the son of Herod the Great. Uh, We're coming up on the Christmas season. It is the father of this Herod that put all of the boys two years old and under to death in Bethlehem. And when Herod the Great died, he gave his kingdom to his four sons, and they each ruled kind of these four little areas. Two of the sons were absolute failures. Their kingdoms or their, their region were lost immediately. And at this point, you only had two ruling, Philip and this Herod, who his full name was Herod Antipas. If you know anything about the Herod family, it was violence, murder, and immorality that ruled the day, and this Herod 
was no different. And we note here that what he had done publicly was to take his brother's wife and to marry her. We find out that he stole his brother Philip's wife away from her, was sleeping with her in an adulterous relationship, and now had married her publicly, and it was a scandal throughout all of uh, Jerusalem. Such a thing should not be done, and people were aghast with it, but there was only one man speaking out about it, John the Baptist. Uh, By the way, the other scandalous thing is not just that this was adultery, that's what we're told here, but we also know that this was incestuous. Herodias was his niece. Um, uh, You get that from the name, Herod and Herodias. She was Herod's niece, and so for both reasons, this was highly scandalous, and so as John the Baptist was preaching publicly, he was publicly calling out his ruler. This is sin. He ought not be doing this, and word got to Herod, and he arrested John for boldly preaching the word against him. And so John now is in a prison cell because of his faithfulness to the word. But you notice there's a conflicted nature about Herod. If you look at verses 19 through 20, we read here that Herodias hated John. That if Herodias got her way, she would kill John the Baptist immediately. She nursed a grudge. She was bitter against him. And the only thing that stood in her way of killing John ironically, was Herod. You notice the reason there, verse 20. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. Herodias wanted John dead. She would come to Herod over and over. Would you just kill this man? Why are we keeping him alive? Did you not hear what he said about us? He publicly shamed you. We need to kill him. And Herod would try to put her away, no, no, we're not going to do this, and we're told the reason why. Herod actually feared John. Now, it's interesting, another gospel tells us that John also feared the followers. John was very popular, and he feared, if he killed him, uh, being very unpopular, but Mark hones in on a personal fear of John himself. Now, you'd say, now, why would Herod fear John the Baptist? Well, your text tells us He feared him because he was a righteous and holy man. In other words, this fear was almost a sense of reverence. This was almost a sense of honor. Herod knew he was a wicked man. Herod knew he was a womanizer. Herod knew he was a man who lived for sensuality and indulgence, and he looked at John the Baptist, and he was the opposite. John the Baptist was an honorable man. John the Baptist kept his word. John the Baptist was bold enough to speak out against his ruler, and there was a sense in which Herod looked on him with a level of respect. No one else would do what John did. Everyone else cowered in fear, but not John. And so when Herod would look at him, he realized, this is a holy man sent by God, and therefore I should not harm him. This wicked man knew enough about holiness and righteousness that he kept him alive because he feared him. But notice one other thing about your text that stands out. Not only did he keep him alive out of fear, notice as well that Herod met with John regularly. You notice that he would invite John in, and John would preach, and we're told here two things. Herod was perplexed by the teaching of John, but he heard him gladly. Isn't that interesting? Here's this wicked man who's done wrong. Here's this preacher of righteousness preaching against Herod. And whenever he would come, John would explain God's word, explain why he'd come, and Herod would be intrigued. Herod would say, that's a, that's a good sermon. I, I really appreciate what John says. I really appreciate 
why he says it. Now, isn't that fascinating? Herod hated God. He was an unconverted man, but he actually liked the preaching of John. And I think you and I should take notice of that. There's a little bit of a warning there. Isn't it interesting that this unconverted man can have a sense of respect and maybe even a sense of liking of a preaching of a man, but not be changed by the preaching? Think of that. What we learn in the text is that it is possible to sit under the preaching of the word week after week and maybe even think well of the minister, think the sermons are good, and go home unchanged. Notice that. Herod appreciated the preaching, but when John left his throne room, was completely unchanged by the word of God. We're reminded, of course, of the parable of the four soils, aren't we? Jesus warned that there is a heart that will hear the word and may even sprout up for a time, but it will not be changed because they are not truly repentant and they're not truly responding to the word. That's who Herod is. Appreciates John, even respects him to a degree, but is unchanged by the preaching of this man. Here's the point. He's a man with a conflicted conscience. He is caught between a vengeful, bitter wife and a sense of fear over the man he is protecting. But now thirdly, the third scene that we need to note this morning is that Herod has a corrupted conscience. He has a corrupted conscience. You notice the scene moves on now to a wicked feast. Look at verse 21. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. So we don't know how long this has been, but some time had passed, and Herod's birthday has come, and Herod knows how to throw a party, and so Herod throws himself a birthday party, inviting all of his top generals, all the leading men, and no doubt this was a drunken party full of wickedness and revelry. But you notice that in the middle of the feast, who, someone had suggested this, that Herodias' daughter, and actually we know her name through historians, is her daughter's name was Salome, came in and danced for the guests of Herod at his birthday party. Now, I hope I don't need to tell you that this wasn't square dancing. This was not the kind of dancing that was honorable. This would have been a seductive dancing. This is dancing that would please the sensuous lust of the men that were in the room. I can imagine this. This is his stepdaughter and her own mother sent her in the room to dance in such a way that would sensually please these men who are no doubt under intoxication at this point. And what we're told is that when the dance was over, Herod was pleased. Herod was pleased with what his stepdaughter had done. And so you notice he invites her forward and tells her, ask anything. Ask anything of me in my kingdom and I will give it to you. Now, there's a couple of things going on here. One, he's doing this out of pride and lust. He, he's proud. He's in front of his friends, and he wants to act the man. He wants to be the guy who owns it all. He says, ask it all. Even if it's up to half my kingdom, and no doubt he didn't really mean that, ask anything, and I'm the man. I can give it to you because you have pleased me. Now, what's also interesting is that technically he really wasn't a king, and so he really didn't have a kingdom. He's more just a regional ruler that Rome kind of propped up to kind of do what they wanted, but to him, he was a proud man. And so you notice that this daughter goes away to ask her mother. So you notice in verses 24 through 26, the daughter goes immediately to Herodias and asks, what should I ask for? And you notice that it's without hesitation, the mother says, get John the Baptist's head. 
I want you to have his head cut off. I want you to put on a food platter. And I want John's bloody head brought to me so I will see for myself this man that I hate so much really had his head cut off from his shoulders. And you notice immediately the daughter goes without haste and she requests it of him. You notice verse 26. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. Herod hears the word. The Salome comes in. She says, I know exactly what I want. Herod says, what is it? I want you to cut John the Baptist's head off right now, and I want you to put it on a food platter, and I want you to bring it to me right now while I'm here waiting. And Herod's heart fell because he knew he'd been had. He knew because of his pride, he would not back out on his word. He knew because of all that he was, he would not refuse this, though he should have. And so he gives the command, and John the Baptist is put to death. We're told here that an executioner went down immediately, brought John from his prison cell, put his head on the block, and in one swing of an axe or a sword, whatever it was, John the Baptist, this faithful man, had his head cut from his shoulder, and he passed from this life on into glory. Now just imagine the scene. We're not told what John experienced, but he was sitting in his prison cell one minute, and the next moment he's being hauled out without any explanation likely, and he's put to death. What a shameful scene. This righteous man who was faithful died for this wicked woman and her bitter grudge. And we're told that this gruesome task was carried out, And the gruesomeness of it was that the head was put on a food platter, brought to the daughter, and the daughter brought the head to her mother, where now her vengeance has finally been completed. And we know the last thing that we're told here is that John's disciples, hearing about it, went, received his body, and then gave him an honorable burial. And that is seemingly the end of the story. But actually, it's not really the end of the story at all. Because the whole point of this text is to remind us that despite the fact that Herod had done this, it plagued his conscience. Now you would say, what did Herod do with this? How did Herod deal with the weight of what he had done? And here's the answer. He continued to suppress it until the moment of his death. How do we know that? Well, we know that because of the end of Herod. The last thing we know about this Herod is actually listed in Luke chapter 23. This Herod will actually meet Jesus face to face on the day that Jesus was betrayed, when Pilate sends Jesus to this Herod, and Herod will receive him gladly. What did this Herod do? Did this Herod repent before Jesus because he knew he was a sinner? Did this Herod confess before Jesus that he was a righteous man and that that, that Herod was a sinful man? No. Herod put clothes on Jesus so that he and his guards could mock Jesus, sent him away, and the last thing we know of history of Herod is that because of his sin, another king conquered him, and he was put to utter shame and utter unrepentance. So here's the point of the story of Herod. He continued to suppress his conscience enough to the point where he could mock the king of glory and go to his way to death without confessing his sin. The point of the text is a warning against the danger of unrepented sin in suppressing it just as Herod would until the point of his demise and actual defeat. And so as we begin to come to close this morning, here's the point that I would leave you with. Behold the danger of suppressing true guilt. Herod had all the warning signs of his guilt. He knew he was a murderer. 
Uh, but rather than bring that before God, rather than confess that, he would suppress it with wicked living until the day of his death. Is that you this morning? Do you come here with a, a guilty conscience? Have you, do you have something burden you this morning like Herod where you want no one else to know? By the word of God, I would urge you, confess that sin today. Do not hold on to this. Go before God now this day and confess it to him. Do not do what Herod did. And do not go to your grave and meet Jesus face to face on judgment day without confessing it and receiving his forgiveness first. That's the lesson this day. And here's the gospel connection. Why has Jesus come? Because all of us are like Herod. All of us have done evil. All of us have sinned against God's law. And what do we desperately need? We need a Savior to die for our sin. And you see, that's really where the gospel comes in. Why would the Bible tell us to confess our sin? First of all, because there's a Savior who can forgive us of our sin. There's one who was nailed to the cross of glory and on the darkness of Calvary, the sin of his people were laid on him and he absorbed it in the full. He was forsaken by the Father so that sinners could come to this Father and say, Father, forgive me. I knew exactly what I was doing. I knew I've offended you. Would you forgive me? And God says, I will. Why? Because I punished my son on your behalf, you see. And I would say the second reason the gospel comes in the text is this. When Jesus ascended into glory, he sent his Holy Spirit because it is the Holy Spirit alone who will soften a heart, to open a heart, to see and to believe, and to repent. You see, that's where grace comes in the text. To see and acknowledge that I am a wicked sinner comes from grace of the Holy Spirit through the shed blood of Christ where we can approach God this morning as Father and say, Father, forgive me. And the Father opens his arms and says, I already have. I cursed my son on your behalf. Welcome into my family because of my amazing love. That's the joy of being a Christian this morning. That we don't have to bear the weight of guilt we, like David, can confess our sin and feel the weight of that guilt lifted off and say, Father, I don't need to put on a show in front of you. You know what I did. You know what I said. You know what I thought. Nothing that about my life is hidden from you. And confess it before him and have God say, I forgive you. Oh, what a joy it is to be a Christian, you see. To not to go through this life putting on a show but telling the world, I am a sinner saved by grace. That is the grace of the gospel. That is the grace that Herod gave up for a temporary life of self-indulgence. Oh, may that not be us this morning. Let us go through this life knowing the joy of a gospel that lifts the burden of our guilt. And so with that in mind, two things that I want to just briefly end with by way of personal application. Two things. First of all, we learned this morning that grace begins with a softening of heart. Grace begins with a softening of heart. You and I, every believer, would reject Jesus had it not been for the grace of the Holy Spirit convicting us of sin. Now, I read it in a book many years ago, and it stood with me that, that conviction of sin is a gift. I don't know if you've ever thought about it that way. Have you ever thought about conviction of sin as a gift? You know, probably more often than not, if you're like me, you almost, your prayer life is, why do I always feel so guilty? Have you ever felt that way? Why is it that more often than not, in Andronaut's life, I'm seeing more and more of my sin, and my life is filled with more and more of, of seeing how, how wicked I am? And here's part of the answer to that. It's a gift of God's illuminating grace. You see, it's a gift when we open the Word and the Holy Spirit says, do you, did you see what you did back there? You need to repent of that. Why do you feel guilty? It's because, well, you've done this. Repent. Confess that. 
See, Christian, part of the the Christian life is this ongoing struggle with our sin where God opens our heart and we feel convicted by that. That's a gift. But you see, that grace must lead us not to just accept that, but to hand that over to Christ. Say, God, lift this. Forgive me for this. Forgive me for what I've said and done. Lift it off me and feeling the joy of once again being received by the Father. Feel the joy of the constant exception or acceptance uh, that we have. That's the joy of the conviction that God gives us. Secondly, secondly, I want to just hone in for a moment on how we learn also that we should be bold and fearless with sharing the Word. Part of the other point of the text that we could really focus on is, is really what the sharing of the Word does and how we are to be bold. In many ways, uh, John the Baptist is a tremendous example of what it is to boldly stand on the Word of God despite the, count, the cost that it would be to him. And again, in, uh, when Mark wrote this gospel, he was writing to persecuted Christians. Part of the main point of this was to encourage them. Stand faithfully on the Word of God, even if it costs you your relationships. Stand faithfully on the Word of God, even if you have to lose your job over it. Stand faithfully on the Word of God, even if you're persecuted by your own rulers. So I just leave you with that. The surety of standing on the Word of God gives us boldness, like John the Baptist, knowing that we stand on the unchangeable truths of God, and may we, like John the Baptist, not apologize for the word of God, but lovingly and boldly hold that out to a watching world. And so, believer this morning, let you and I heed the warning lights of our conscience. Let us enjoy the gift of the gospel of confessing our sin, and let us live openly knowing that we are forgiven in Jesus Christ. Amen. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, this morning, we thank you for the conviction of our sin where you bring that in our life. Father, we pray that you would open up the heavens and send the Spirit, that he would continue to transform us. And Father, we pray, continue to give us grace in this life as we follow after Christ. And we ask this in Christ's name alone. Amen.